Uh, today we'll be uh, hearing from God's Word from Mark chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can open that up. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, words are up on the screen here for you today. also want to uh, make known to you that there are some free Bibles on the table just outside the doors there for your taking. Uh, it's from the version that I uh, read and, and preach from, which is the English Standard Version. Uh, so please, if you, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to, to give that to you today. Uh, we have been uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and if you're here for the first time, uh, the way I preach and the way we, we go through series here, you can really jump in at any point, and so I'll do a, a quick catch-up every sermon, but we've been, we've been going through Mark's Gospel, looking at different encounters with Jesus, and uh, I've, I've titled the series, The Way of Paradox, Following the Right-Side-Up King in an Upside-Down World. And so what we've seen in, in these various encounters with Jesus is, is Jesus is not what we always expect. That he's, he's extremely countercultural, and uh, he, he does things that, that we don't expect. And today, uh, the case is uh, no different. Um, let me uh, set the scene for, for this. I, I ran across a video um, this week. It's on my Facebook feed. It was a video with uh, Michael Phelps in it. I don't know if anybody of you saw this. I don't know how widespread it went. Michael Phelps is the Olympian swimmer. And this video, I forget what the brand was for. Uh, they obviously didn't do very good marketing because I don't even know what the commercial was for. But the video just showed um, all of the behind-the-scenes work that he did in order to, to be who he is athletically, an Olympian. And it showed just all of the rigorous um, training and swimming and weights and his, his diet, what he ate. It showed all of that. And the, um, the panoramic or the, or the feel of the video was very dark. It just kind of had, like, all of the hard work behind it was really dark. And then at the very end of it, you know, he comes out on stage for, the, for, the, for a great race, and, and it's very light and exciting. And they, they close with this, say, uh, this phrase, I, I think I may be paraphrasing, but it says, it's what happens in the dark that brings you to the light. It was really powerful the way that the video uh, was, was brought together. But, but it's what happens in the dark that brings Michael Phelps to the light. It's all that hard work. Today's passage is a very dark passage. Uh, the, the, whole, the circumstances around it, the context for it is really dark. And so that's the stage that's set for today's passage. We're going to look at Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32, and I'm going to read through verse 42. So this is the word of the Lord. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the, weak, the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our Lord, will stand forever. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, it's our deepest delight to study and know your word because in it you have made yourself known. But Lord, apart from your help, we can do nothing good, including knowing you. And so, Lord, I pray now that you, would, um, that you would take the words of this mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and that they would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so your familiarity with Christ- Christianity varies. Uh, most of us have a general, broad idea, or at least we think we do, of what Christianity teaches. And this is kind of the helicopter approach to Christianity, understanding kind of who God is and maybe what Jesus came to do. And we kind of do this 50,000-foot hover of it. And a lot of that happens in preaching. Uh, sometimes we try to give the big storyline, and then we try to, make con- I try to make connections to that to us privately. Um, today, I want to do two things in, with the sermon, and I want to begin with that helicopter view. I want us to take the 50,000-foot view of what's going on here uh, in this garden because it actually helps us connect it to, to kind of some of the inside stuff. And so we're going to begin with the, the helicopter view, but, but the helicopter is really going to land in our hearts. Uh, I really want this to, to, to get personal. Um, this passage was extremely hard for me. Uh, as a preacher, you, you have the privilege of spending time in, in the passage all week, and so you're thinking about that. And so um, I hope that, that God would do the same for us today. But as we begin the helicopter approach, um, it's one thing to believe about what God has done in history, right? We know that Jesus died. That's, that's a historical truth. It's a, it's a historical reality. But it's a completely entire different thing to believe that Christ died for you. That he personally died for you. And so today, as we go into the garden, let me begin with the helicopter. So here's the helicopter over God's Bible. The Bible began in a garden, and now it's coming to a conclusion. It'll actually conclude in a city. But today we have a garden scene. Okay, so the Garden of Eden is where the Bible begins. God's storyline of redemption begins. And and the Garden of Gethsemane has deep significance to us. So let's go back to the Garden of Eden real quick just to draw some parallels. In the Garden of Eden, this was a garden that was made by God and for God's people. It was a place where God would perfectly dwell with his people. There was no ruptured relationship. And the voice of God in the garden sounded like this. Trust me. He gave one command. He said, eat everything from this garden except from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, he's saying, trust me. And if you know the storyline of the Bible, you know that humanity could not do that. They were tempted. The serpent came in and he drowned out the voice of God and said, do you really trust God? And Eve took of the fruit and she ate of it and she gave some to her husband and he ate of it and God came and they were condemned. They were judged. They were, they were banished from the garden. There was a rupture that took place. There was a trust that was broken. And so everything from the second chapter of the Bible to where we are today and to the very end is a result of that decision to not trust God. So fast forward, now we're in the new garden. This is the garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was in the Kidron Valley. It was an, it was an olive orchard. 
It was at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. It was a lush place. In fact, the disciples, we'll find out later, had already been here many times. But here, what was happening was a redoing of the Garden of Eden. And so the trust that Adam and Eve could not do, Jesus comes to show what trust really looks like. And so today, as we explore this, I think I have a suspicion that you, along with me, have a hard time trusting God. We have a hard time trusting God when our circumstances are unbearable, when our foreseen future is dark, when there is this, just this deep uncertainty about what might be ahead of us. We struggle to trust God in that. And so questions that I want us to ask ourselves today is things like, why is it so hard to trust God? And how can I trust him more? And so as we look to Jesus in the garden, we're going to see different ways that he trusted God. And, and I want to make some connections to our own lives too. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw out three different um, circumstances that we see in this passage that show us how we can trust God. Because here's the, the big bottom line for us. If deeper trust in God is what you want, then an empty cup is what you need. So if you want to grow in your relationship and your trusting of God, what you need out of a passage like this is an empty cup. And we'll get there and see how that pans out. But here's how we can trust God. Here's, there's three, three different circumstances that we can trust God even when sorrows fill us and darkness surrounds us. So when sorrow fills us, we can trust God even when the answer is no. And then we, thirdly, we can trust God even when we continually fail. So let's consider uh, how we can trust God when sorrow fills us. Um, in our encounters with Jesus, particularly in the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, there were these, these radical things that Jesus was doing, right? He was calming nature, if you remember the, the, the storm that he calmed. He was healing leprous, diseased people by simply speaking to them or touching them. He was doing these, these unbelievable things that were making claims that he was more than a man. Mark's, the setup of Mark's entire gospel was to show us that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was God. But in a passage like today, we actually get to see that Jesus was a man. We actually get to see the, the flesh of Jesus, the struggle of Jesus. Jesus was fully man. He, he got hungry like we got hungry. He, he got thirsty. He experienced pain. He experienced emotions like joy and suffering and angst. He experienced happiness and sadness. Jesus was like us in many, many ways. He was only unlike us in one way in that he was sinless. He was fully trusting of God at every avenue of his life. But the, the humanity of Jesus, I mean, look how, how Mark's gospel describes it. It says that he, uh, took, he takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and then he begins to be greatly distressed and troubled, and then he says his soul is very sorrowful. To be greatly distressed is to be astonished, okay? He was, something shocking was happening in this garden and that, he's, that he sees ahead of him. To be, to be troubled is this, this, this stirring of the, the spirit that gives you that anxiety that, that rises up that you, you just don't know. Jesus is experiencing that. He, he's, he's feeling sorrowful, I've mentioned this word in, in numerous sermons uh, up to this point, and at the risk of sounding redundant, I'm going to do it again because I think it's important. This word sorrow has, is used three times in Mark's gospel. 
It was used once to describe the young rich ruler who was unwilling to give everything away to follow Jesus, says that he walked away sorrowful. It was used of the the disciples that were around the table at the Lord's Supper, right, At at the Passover meal, when Jesus had said that one of them was going to betray him. It says that the the disciples responded with great sorrow. And then here we see Jesus very sorrowful even to death. Now, the sorrow that's described here, let me me try to illustrate this so you can try to get your own understanding of it. Imagine you're driving down I-40, the big I somewhere, and you're headed home from work. And there's an accident. Go figure, an accident on on the big I. You know, pretty, pretty, pretty plausible. And so you're driving down and you're slowly kind of, you know, everybody's got to look. We got to see what's going on. And as you're driving, you see the vehicle that's crashed. Perhaps it's flipped. And on the bumper of that vehicle, you see a bumper sticker that's extremely familiar to you and unique. And in that moment, you realize you know that person. Perhaps that person's somebody you love. And so as you drive by that car, how do you begin to feel? begin to get upset. You might even get nauseous. It's affecting you physically, driving by this crash scene, not knowing the condition of your loved one. That's the kind of sorrow that's being described here. Jesus becomes sorrowful even to death, and it's not just because he knows death is coming. In fact, what we'll see in the language is that, that the, the, the trusting uh, or the, the struggle and sorrow that he's having is because he knows that abandonment and, and, um, and just darkness of cosmic proportions is coming his way. And he's nauseous over it. He's physically upset. And so what do we see Jesus doing here? And here's some kind of applications that I think we can draw in our own lives. What well, we see that, that for Jesus and for us that trusting God is more of a heart issue than it is a hand issue. In other words, what's taking place in this dark garden that we don't talk about all that often is actually very significant for Jesus. This is the turning point where Jesus would decide whether he was willing to be the sin bearer for humanity. This is the decision point, right? It's past this line and he's committed. And so that's not to demean or diminish or kind of be flippant about the work on the cross because certainly we don't want to do that. But it's in this dark garden that something significant changes. Jesus realizes that trusting God is more of a heart issue than it is a hand issue. Another thing we see that is that trusting God is painfully difficult. We, the, the language of the passage does not let us get around this. It is difficult to trust God. Hear this. If it's hard for Jesus to trust God, it's going to be hard for us to trust God. And though it's on different levels and, and our, our darkness and our abandonment certainly isn't cosmic like his was, nonetheless, we can relate to Jesus in his struggle to trust God. A third point of connection is that trusting God affects every part of us. It affects all of us. It affects our thoughts. It affects our emotions. It affects our actions. I mean, if you've ever made a, a big decision, I mean, you know, for those of you that are married and can remember your, um, your proposal, I mean, the, the, the moments leading up to that, it, you know, there's just this this buildup that it's got to be perfect and it's this is the biggest decision of your life and it's going to change everything about you and you know you're sweaty palmed and you're nauseous and it, it changes things so 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 here too trusting God affects every part of us you can't eat sometimes you can't think right you lose sleep you know what this feels like and it's okay trusting God affects every part of us so we can trust God even when sorrow fills us a second 
thing that we see in the passage is that we can trust God even when the answer is no. Um, Look at the prayer of Jesus. Uh, It begins in verse 35. Uh, Luke's gospel actually gives us a little bit more of the details. Luke's gospel is a little bit fuller than Mark's. Remember, Mark's is the fast gospel, so he's just trying to get to the cross, kind of he's in a hurry to get there. But in Luke's gospel, it talks, that's the passage that talks about Jesus blooding sweat and anxiety here. But it also talks about here, it describes in further detail that Jesus fell on his face in prayer. Here it says he fell on the ground. Luke's gospel is just a little bit more descriptive. But the point here is that his prayer is intimate, it's honest, it's heartfelt, and it's driven him to the ground to seek God's face. Uh, The language he uses, he says, Abba, Father. Now that is, that is the language of a child. Okay, this is, you've, you've probably heard this sermon if you've been in church. This is, this is the language of daddy or poppy or whatever the, the common language. This was what a Jewish child would have called her earthly, his or her earthly father, Abba. But it never would have been used of God, ever. This was not a term that would have been used of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, And so here Jesus gives us this vulnerable intimacy that he has with God in this dark moment by calling him Abba Father. And the the nature of the the prayer is this, remove the cup. Uh, uh, If it were possible, he wants the hour to pass from him and the cup to be removed from him. What what is that? Let's let's talk about what the hour is. Um, If you've read through the New Testament, and you've read through some of the gospel accounts, you'll be familiar with how Jesus continually told his disciples that the time had not yet come, okay? So everything that Jesus was doing was designed, it was ordered, it had a timetable that was set by God. And so in many places, Jesus continued to say, the time's not here yet. The hour was a time of judgment. The hour was the, was the apocalyptic, the end times language that judgment was coming, And so that's exactly what Jesus knew he was facing. He was was facing the hour of judgment. And that would be manifest in in the cup. Well, the cup was a very common Old Testament reference to God's wrath towards human evil. Okay? It was the wrath of God poured out on humanity's sin. That was what the cup always represented. And that's what Jesus suggests is happening here. He knows judgment's coming, and it's coming in the form of God's wrath. And so his, his, his prayer is, God, let this hour pass and move the cup away. If there's any other way that this plan of redemption can be accomplished, let it be so. And what's God's answer? Silence. There was no angel that came to relieve him of his circumstances. There was no alternative plan B given to him in mercy. The answer is no. And so for Jesus, choosing God's path, it meant facing God's wrath. That's that's what he was up against. And it undid him. So I think it's common for you and for the world we live in to say things like this. Well, how can I trust a God who's angry like that? How can I trust a God who's full of wrath? and vengeance, and justice. And I want a loving God, not a wrathful God. And here would be my response to that, 
is that you cannot have a loving God unless you have a wrathful God. Hear me out. If our God is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness, he would be unloving not to punish the evil that is within us and without us. I mean, think about it in your own life. If you know somebody you love that is hurting themselves, they're destroying themselves, whether it be through some substance addiction or through some unhealthy relationship or through whatever form that was coming in, they're destroying themselves, would it be loving of you to neglect them? Your instinct is to do what? To get angry, to get mad, and then to intervene. And so love is always filled with anger. Now, God's anger is righteous anger. It, 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 it's justice. It's, it's the, 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 the foundation of righteousness. And so in God's wrath, his love means much more to us. And that's what we're going to see kind of as we move through this passage, that, that love and justice are two sides of the same coin for God. And so how can you trust a God when the answer is no? Well, you look at how Jesus did it. He got the answer no to the most unbearable question in prayer ever. No, this hour will not pass. No, this cup will not go to somebody else. You will take it. And he moves forward. We can trust God even when the answer is no. Thirdly, let's consider how we can trust God when we continually fail. My college career was extended. Uh, I took the long way to the bachelor's degree. Uh, some of you have heard this story. My parents are here, so they know all about it. Um, I took about, I think, six or seven years to complete my college career, and my nemesis was College Algebra 121. <laughs> I will never forget College Algebra 121. It took me three times to pass College Algebra 121. My friend Shane, the math teacher in the back, is just shaking his head at me. It's just shameful. But, but through that failure, I learned so much. I learned perseverance. I learned that I hate math. I learned that I never had to take another math class again. I just had to get through College Algebra 121. This passage, sometimes, and others like it, we laugh at the disciples, right? Jesus comes out to pray. He takes his, his inner three circle. I mean, he takes, he takes his boys. He takes them out. He's like, let's go pray. This is coming. And he goes out for a minute, comes back, they're asleep. Now listen, they had just finished the Passover meal. So they're full at least. They've been drinking wine. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But nonetheless, Jesus finds them sleeping. He goes back out to pray. He comes back again, same thing. He goes back out, he comes back again, same thing. Fail, fail, fail. You know, the threefold nature of this failure rings of Peter's threefold denial uh, in the passage right above ours, actually, Jesus foretells that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows once. And that does come to fruition. And so we see in Peter's denial, we see in these disciples' inability to stay awake, we see the failed nature of all of us. One of the most ironic things is the last time the disciples were in this garden, at, in the, the olive orchard, he, he was teaching, uh, Jesus was teaching them about how the end would come. And the very last words that were spoken, this is in Mark chapter 13, verse 37, the very last words Jesus told them was, stay awake. And so the irony is just too thick. Jesus tells him, stay awake, the end is coming, 
and they're asleep, asleep, asleep. Do you, do you feel the palpability of their failure? Do you see? And, and does Jesus forsake the mission? No. He says, okay, the time's come. I've come to die for failures like you. So here's the principle for us is, is that when we fail, grace prevails. That's what he's been showing us this entire gospel is that Jesus didn't come for healthy people. Didn't, Jesus didn't come to help people who could help themselves. He, he came for people that fall asleep on him all the time. Um, one, of, one of my favorite authors and preachers, Tim Keller, um, likely, if I don't know where the quote came from, I just give him credit for it. Um, but this week he, he posted this quote, and, and I think it really just applies to, to us here. And I'm going I'm to nuance it a little bit to my own kind of intent here. He says this. He says that God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. So let me nuance that. God accepts us as we are, failures. He leaves us, or I'm sorry, he, he loves us as we are, failures. He accepts us as we are, failures. But he does not leave us as we are, failures. Grace changes everything. That Jesus was going to drink this cup and face this hour for people that slept on him is remarkable and should change everything about us. If trust in God is what you want, an empty cup is what you need. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is a um, early American theologian and preacher and he preached a passage on this, or a sermon on this passage. And I read through sections of it. And in it, he gives this, this glorious description of what Jesus was facing here. And I want to read that to you to get the imagery of what's going on in this garden and what's coming up in the cross. And he, he said this about this passage. He said that in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had a near view of the furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. It was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. This was given in his agony. In this garden... Jesus is looking into the fiery furnace of God's wrath that's coming his way. The fiery furnace of God's wrath was satisfied on Calvary's cross. And so what we see on the cross of Christ is not some unordinary man that had stumbled across, across some strange and cruel people. What we see is God's plan of redemption coming to perfect fruition. What we see on the cross is the love of God married with the justice of God. What we see on the cross is sinners being punished in the person and soul of Jesus. That, that our sin filled that cup and he took that cup and he drank it. Our sins of cold indifference towards people that need us. Our sins of hot hatred towards each other. Our sins of the flesh our lust, our love for this world, all of that was in that cup. And then Jesus drank it. He drank the cup for you. 
And I think we can know that Jesus died for us intellectually, but not believe it experientially. John 3.36 says that whoever believes in the Son shall have eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you're here today and you don't know the loving justice of God that we're talking about, the wrath actually remains on you. The cup is actually still in your hand. Because what our sin and what our rebellion has done is it's been against an infinite and eternal God. And so what we believe about hell and punishment actually stems from the idea that it would take that long to drink this cup ourselves. But the good news for sinners like you and sinners like me today is that Jesus actually drank the cup for his people. And so will you stop trying to drink the cup yourself? Will you stop thinking that you can take this cup and drink it in small portions by being a good person? Will you stop trying to drink this cup by thinking that by walking old ladies across the street or putting tithing checks into the church box office or whatever your form of self-righteousness is, stop it. Jesus drank the cup. But I think there's also a strand of us that thinks that, that Jesus, that the cup is still coming to us. That for whatever reason, God is holding this cup of his wrath over our heads and he's saying, you're going to drink this. And what that looks like is guilt and shame and conviction. Hear me today. Jesus drank the cup. And he didn't just drink part of it. He didn't drink most of it. He drank all of it. And that is the best news in the world for people like you and for people like me. If you struggle to believe in a God that could punish sinners, if you struggle with a God who is filled with wrath and anger, I challenge you to come back and hear more about this God. Because I would submit that all of us here today, all of us are looking for love like this. Love that is willing to take the cup for people that don't deserve it. That's the good news for sinners today. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I pray that uh, as, we, as we walk away from a, a dark passage like this, that we wouldn't leave actually distressed, but we would leave encouraged that the cup is now empty that the, the hour of judgment and the cup of wrath has passed and been emptied, and because of that, we can trust you more. I pray that for those here today who are struggling to trust you, perhaps even for the first time, Lord, they've been hurt, um, they've been hindered to come to you for whatever circumstance, Lord, I pray that you would relieve that and that you would show them the good news about Jesus. For, for others today who are still struggling but are trusting, Lord, I pray that you would continue to firm that foundation, that we would look to Christ and to Christ alone and to that empty cup, and that we would rejoice forevermore. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the time in it. Would you bless it for your own glory? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.